Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, if you've ever searched for great performances of classical standard repertoire, you've probably come across videos of performances of the BBC proms. And this week on the Coffeehouse, we're going to be exploring the history of this iconic concert series. The proms, or more specifically the London proms, started in the summer of 1895, though the concept for them had been hatched a few years earlier. A man by the name of Robert Newman had a grand vision. He loved classical music and wanted to promote it to the general public in an engaging way. Newman's official grand vision was, quote, run nightly concerts and train the public by easy stages, popular at first, gradually rising the standard until I have created a public for classical and modern music. So essentially, Newman wanted to create a fun concert atmosphere that people would learn to enjoy, but slowly but surely make them enjoy even the most obscure types of music. And so, to bring about this grand vision... Newman became the impresario of the Queen's Hall Performance Hall. But Newman was no conductor, so he needed a partner for this grand endeavor. He found just the perfect fit with a young English conductor named Henry Wood, and together they formed the Queen's Hall Orchestra, and on August 10, 1895, held the very first Night of the Proms. Now, perhaps we should backtrack a bit and talk about the name of this concert series. What on earth is a prom, actually? Well, it's certainly not referring to a high school prom. Rather, it is derived from the more formal term, promenade concert. What Newman envisioned, and what still happens at prom concerts today, is a more informal venue where concert goers could stroll around, eat, drink, and overall have an unstuffy and enjoyable time. Certainly, this was not a new setup, as outdoor concerts were often set up like this already. However, Newman wanted indoor concerts, and thus the proms were the first of their kind to be housed in a real performance venue. In an interesting comparison, we often hear Shakespeare's Globe Theatre having been mostly standing only. And, of course, the theatre during the English Renaissance is often described as being a way for the public masses to gain cultural knowledge and expand their horizons, much like Newman was trying to do with his modern London public. Thus, it goes to show that throughout time, people have been, and still are, willing to undergo the inconvenience of standing if they have access to affordable, quality performances. Along with this concept was the central tenet of the proms was that it would be accessible to as many people as possible. This was accomplished with the ticket prices. During the first season, a ticket for a single night was one shilling, approximately one cent, and a whole season ticket was a guinea. This was certainly the best deal of the century. If you purchased that season ticket, 
you were entitled to attend all of the nightly except Sunday programs that ran for 10 weeks, a total of 49 concerts. And on top of that, each program was scheduled to last up to three hours. That is 147 total hours of music, or about six full days worth, all for about a dollar. Wow. The first proms concert was a huge hit. 2,500 people showed up and the atmosphere was like a party. The first concert program had a total of 25 pieces, ranging from traditional and patriotic arrangements to Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsodies to arias from Saint-Saëns and to London and world premieres of brand new works. In spite of the success the proms had throughout the years, Newman's personal finances forced him to give up sponsorship of the proms. Luckily, in 1915, a new sponsor, the Chappell & Company Publishers, swooped in to offer support. With this change in sponsorship, the orchestra changed names as well to the new Queen's Hall Orchestra. However, Henry Wood remained as the artistic director and conductor of the orchestra. By 1927, however, Chappell & Company also felt the need to withdraw. But the well-loved proms was not to fall by the wayside. A new financial hero arrived, the British Broadcasting Corporation, or the BBC. With its goal to, quote, inform, educate, and entertain, end quote, it seemed only natural that the BBC would want to support one of the most prolific concert series in the world. Eventually, the orchestra changed names again, this time to the famous BBC Orchestra. And with the help of the BBC, the proms was now able to reach an even wider audience than before. At first, the concerts were able to be broadcast over the radio, and later over the TV. Thus, you could experience the astounding range of performances for free from the comfort of your own home. And thus all seemed to be going well until World War II hit. One of the structural casualties of the 1941 London Blitz included the beloved Queen's Hall. Luckily, a building that was spared in the Blitz was the culturally significant Royal Albert Hall of Arts and Sciences. This concert hall had been built in 1867 to commemorate Queen Victoria's late husband, Prince Albert. The Queen herself had laid the first stone of the building. Acoustically, the Royal Albert Hall is difficult to play in. Its stunning high-domed architectural designs create somewhat of a sound trap in the ceiling. In the 1960s, this was somewhat corrected with the installation of mushroom sound diffusers. However, even with its acoustic flaws, the Royal Albert Hall had a grand arena in front of the stage, perfect for the promenade nature of the concerts. And the Royal Albert Hall has remained the venue for the BBC proms since being moved there in 1941. However, the proms has also expanded. There is now the famous Proms in the Park with an outdoor version of the proms, and there is also a chamber music series associated with the proms. Now, of course, the goal is still to present the largest selection of music with the highest quality. And so, there are now even frequent jazz and world musicians who are invited to perform, thus enriching the musical outlooks of the audience even further. However, Pops sort of pieces are still performed as crowd favorites. And of course, you may have heard of the iconic Last Night of the Proms. This is the season finale performance of each year's proms. 
the night usually starts out with the normal sort of concert repertoire. However, after the intermission, the audience returns for a patriotic sing-along hullabaloo. The <laughs> national anthem and fantasies of various other patriotic songs are performed while the audience parties and waves the British flag. Throughout the history of the proms, some conductors have embraced the tradition, joining in and encouraging the audience to really go for it. Others, though, have disliked the raucous atmosphere and felt it was taking away from the goal of the proms to educate and heighten the audience's perception of music. Over the years, some conductors have tried to modify the traditional sequence of songs that are performed, often to the extreme dislike of the public. That being said, in one notable proms last night in September of 2001, just after the bombing of the Twin Towers in America, the program was much more somber than the usual fare. It included Barber's Adagio for Strings, the finale from Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, and the American National Anthem alongside the British. And of course, in light of the current state of world affairs, this year's prom season has looked drastically different. The usual crowd on the floor of the Royal Albert Hall is not present. However, the BBC is offering full archive concerts online, and the final two weeks of the series will be streamed live. Unfortunately, as you're hearing this very podcast episode, the season has ended, but simply searching for the proms online will definitely turn up a multitude of videos from years past that you can enjoy at your leisure throughout the year. So thank you for tuning into this shorter episode of The Coffee House as we talk not about the classical music, but about a concert series that brought it to so many of us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a positive review on iTunes and Google Play, dropping a follow on Spotify, and sharing us with a like-minded friend. For The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance March No. 4 was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffee House on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.